This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Well, I'm here with Peter Coviello. He's the author of Violin Reread on Columbia University Press. And we have quite an hour ahead of us. Thanks for joining me, Peter. Thank you very much. Normally, I, I ask people to kind of give the, their biography and the background to how and why they wrote this book. But it seems like the book gives that to you. Uh, so I thought I would just jump straight to maybe a bit of a confrontational question to start things off with. Always good to start. Always good to start with a denunciation if we yes. can. Yeah. Um, so I'll just say, for those of you reading along at home, on page 27, you can tell a story about uh, being with your friends. And then you say, it'd be easy to feel embarrassed by episodes like this, given their self-pleased insularity, their tediousness, their total demographic predictability. Listen, I know in italics. If I'm less mortified by them than perhaps I should be, it is not because I suspect the scenes of sociability at their center to be hives of insurrectionary format or subversiveness or really anything other than the finally commonplace. So my question is, why be embarrassed? Oh my God, why be embarrassed by your like adolescent fits of ardor, your untutored enthusiasm? Oh my God, when I think of my own, this is like, you know, this is like being whatever, 19, when I think of my own uh, uh, sort of unchecked 19 year old enthusiasms, I don't know, man, I find a lot to be embarrassed about. Uh, but the things, you know, the, the, the sort of like unknowing that circulates in it, the, the <laughs> insufficient thoughtfulness, the not knowledge of what the actual grief of the world is like, but all that said, um, this was the, that's a little scene about, um, learning how to love this book in concert with all these other people, which I'm very grateful for because it taught me how to love books you know, collectively in a, as part of loving other people, which I think is a sort of commonplace thing we're most used to with with bands and things like, like fighting about records or fighting about movies or whatever. Um, and that was certainly a part of my own um, uh, predictable college kid adolescence. But so, so, so were books. And that was really where I fell for Vineland in the scenes of like uh, raucous and largely idiot dispute about it that followed. Um, but that sta- sort of stayed with me, you know what I mean? And like, like kept me afloat for a number of decades thereafter. So yeah, that would be, oh man, though, there's a lot to be embarrassed about <laughs> back then. I will, uh, well, I mean, my next little series of quotes that I wanted to bring in, the one uh, just comes a few pages later is you, you say, trying to figure out why you love something. And then a little bit after that, you talk about the non-negligible force of happiness. Um, now, what was it? It was a, I think it was Gore Vidal who talked about there was a time in the fifties when the the main thrust of people's arguments were about literature, and then there was a moment, kind of with the Beatles, when it changed. It was kind of more appropriate to to feel that way about music rather than literature. Like, like is this the the belatedness that you talk about? Uh, to set up the whole book, can we kind of, I mean, I'm like just kind of off the top of my head here. It seems like that's another kind of factor that's coming into play of, is it quite, uh, quite right to have been a 19 year old so keyed up about literature rather than something more age appropriate? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. That's a, that's a, that's, that's a good question. And again, this is part of what I write about in the book is a kind of demographic predictability. Like there we are at kids in college. What is college selling you? But the sense that like, there's this great hundreds year deep archive of things about which you can have the same intensities of ardent feeling as you might about uh, the record that's coming out of your Walkman or whatever, or the thing that's playing in the jukebox. So I guess like a, a piece of good fortune for 1990 me, I guess was, or 1993 me was, I hadn't read Gore Vidal. So there was no real sense of like shame about it. It was just another thing that you could be excited about. 
And I mean, I know as someone, and I'm sure you've had this too, as someone's teaching, that's so much what you're trying to get to students. Like, I know you're capable of intensities of aesthetic responsiveness. I know you're capable of like far flung thoughtfulness about a ridiculous aesthetic object, like a movie or a film or a painting. You can do, books are available for you in the same way. They will equip you with another kind of articulacy about them. Um, yeah, geez, when I think about it now, like that, that the the impulse that would become pedagogical sort of begins around this time too, you know, like trying to prove your dumb point about a book to your friends. <laughs> Sounds like most of my growing up time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, all right, well, you you bring a moment out of this uh, that comes out of Vineland, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's actually a word that is in incredibly common use when we were talking before we started, uh, incredibly common use in Australian uh, talk where I'm living. Um, and I'll just read the end of this scene. It, it's from Violent, and the conversation ends with, nice seeing you again, brother. Um, oh, yeah. And, and I, a I feel like scene. here it seems like this, uh, the novel echoes your concern. Um, and, and here's now I want to hone in on who, who we're talking about. Um, that there's a, there's, I don't want to be mean, but it seems like there's a fear that, that you keep kind of returning to of that someone might misconstrue what, what seems to me to be an earnest love uh, for this piece of literature and for the, the non-negligible force of happiness that it brought into your life. It's occurring between these characters in the novel. It's occurring for you and the novel. And it's occurring for you with your friends kind of through the medium of the novel. So. Who's this imagined audience that we're worrying about? Oh, it's well, it's part of it's just me, like, because the other part of the book is about, like, it's a political novel about uh, the scale of police state counterinsurgency, you know what I mean? And there's certainly in what I do, and God bless what I do, I'm, like, happy to be a professor, there's a kind of um, uh, willful overestimation of the specifically political utility of something like a novel. And I'm kind of not interested in that, man. Like, I'm kind of not interested in mistaking the novel for, as I say in the book, um, fire in the police cruiser, mobilized collective action. Like, those are not identical things. They transpire at different scales. And I'm wary of the mistaking of one for the other, even if I want to hold to, again, the non-negligible force of something like a novel, just as like a resource for convening people together, for giving them ways to think and imagine themselves into a world that is inhospitable and broken and stuff like that. So the so what, what the, the the sort of I guess what you're noting is a sort of defensiveness, is a kind of wariness. You know what I mean? Of that sort of like rush to overestimate the political utility of something like a novel, which is fundamentally a novel. Like that's, it's, it's transpiring in a different register of action, which is not to dismiss it, which is not to cancel its force, but to try to be, uh, you could say thoughtful about, uh, the register in which that force transpires. So I guess that would, that's, that's some of the answer for me at least. That's the second half of what I have planned. So let's let's hold that. Uh, let's hold that for the yeah. moment, um, yeah. because I think the the opening uh, section of the book, which I found uh, you know a wonderful way to to bring me on side, uh, there's a real kind of uh, you know, and I think also uh, it's a demographic cliche that I would kind of. Uh, yeah. uh, and this, it feels yeah, man, the I'm 90s were great. Guilty. We were both there. Uh, the 90s were great. Um, <laughs> um, but what, there's all this kind of, um, uh, it's more, I guess I would say, more uh, in the affective register than, uh, than anything else to kind of set things up. Uh, and so you kind of use that to try it. And I think you, you said you use it as kind of a, a pedagogical setup. So I thought, well, let's talk about teaching. Um, because I think one of the things that's really great about the novel, about, about the, well, the novel is just great, but really great about your engagement with it is that uh, you do a lot with form. And I, I feel like it's one thing uh, literature classes can always offer is they can just give people vocabulary uh, and, and to understand form. Um, so maybe the first one, uh, basically you conceive of Pynchon as education. 
as a, as a form of education uh, of, of your own kind of uh, in terms of friendship, in terms of kind of coming, uh, coming to understanding who you are and, you know, senses of possibility. Uh, and then there's also this kind of classroom part, um, which um, cynically we might say like the classroom is a space of like accreditation. Um, and how, how can you kind of place Vineland in, in kind of these two locations uh, like simultaneously or in competition. One is just like what we just talked about, uh, literature's ability to do something that isn't, you know, a riot, but you know, something that a novel does. Uh, and then kind of its place in in teaching more generally at, at the university where you work. Yeah. I mean, I will say I haven't taught, because um, I, I, I should confess up front, like uh, uh, I'm not a 19th or, or excuse me, I'm not a 20th or 21st century Americanist. My specialty is like 19th century America and queer theory. So I'm really an interloper in the field of pension studies in a very grievous way. Um, um, but one of the things you could say is like a classroom, like all spaces, uh, it, like all pressure points of capitalist modernity is a space of like intense contradiction. And you're naming one, I think, quite well, like on the one hand, classrooms are spaces of like dizzying possibility where thought finds itself in new conjunctions and you find yourself attached to ideas and indeed persons you might not have been attached to otherwise. They also transpire inside an institution whose point is like money getting and uh, uh, exactly, as you say, uh, accreditation. I, I will say like, I'm very pleased to be at a place like UIC, which is public, you know what I mean? Which is public. The whole point of a place like UIC is like, we're going to give the highest caliber education to kids regardless of background, status, color, wealth, need. And like, there's not a lot of places that that do that. And in a real way, being here for this many years gave me sort of new eyes for the grief of a novel like Vineland, you know, because part of what it sees as the, as the gathering storm of um, you know neoliberal totality is the evisceration of all things public. So I mean, teaching you're sort of there. There's no place to be but in that space of contradiction. Like uh, we're absolutely here to uh, give accreditation and move people along into their comfortable cog place in the system. At the same time, you're equipping them with tools, just like Christian, exactly as you say, with like an ampler and more exacting vocabulary with which to grapple with their place in that um, enveloping system. And I mean, a pleasure about Vineland for me is that it does so, it does that pedagogical work often in the key of joyousness. Like it's in, like the novel instructs you in a kind of like undefended openness in part by its like unbelievable graciousness and hospitality often executed at like the level of the Daffy sentence, which is so welcoming, which is like, like the comedy of the thing does so much work to open the space uh, of that, uh, of that like gracious welcome into the world of aesthetic contestation. So if I ever taught it in the classroom again, I mean, I taught, as I say in the book, I taught it to grownups in Maine a number of years ago. That went badly. But if I ever taught it in the classroom, I hope it would go better. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you talk about even just the sentences. One, one, one wonderful little bit that you write is, shorn of the novel's habitual prolixity and pile up of dependent clauses, the scene unfolds in direct declarative bursts. Uh, and, and to me, this is a sort of just a, it, what follows is a just a wonderful close reading of look at this. And you say, these are short declarative sentences. Look what they do. They they change the way in which we engage with this. And it is kind of impossible not to be clearly situated inside this scene and, and the kind of, you know, the change that it that it brings with it. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the scene at the riot right, where, where we'd happen to seeing someone being beaten up by the cops. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. With, with moments like that, um, do we kind of miss the forest for the trees in conceiving of Pynchon in general, but Vineland in particular, as this kind of maximalist text? Um, yeah, man. The, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, one of the things to say, but I, I would put it like this. I think that's that's right. I, I would say that for a book that's as antic and performingly silly as it is, it super rewards exactly the kind of attention you're talking about, like like the close scrutiny to its sentences, like the the way that the ornate Jamesian syntax is constantly being wedded to this like vernacular undercutting speech. A lot is at stake in that for the book itself, it seems to me like. Like that's the, for me, that's one of the most sensitive registers of kind of like the, the atmosphere of the world it makes. 
which is antic, slightly uh, askew to the given world, but also filled with a, a... if, if all you read is pinch and criticism or all you know about is like gravity's rainbow or whatever, you'll be surprised at the intensity of tenderness in the book, like the warmth of fond regard that transpires between the novel and even the somewhat cartoonish characters that populate its stage. And that as I got older, you know what I mean? Like when I first read it, I was just like, holy shit, this is so funny. I can't even, it's like a Roadrunner cartoon uh, in, in the key of high modernism. But as you get older, you're like, oh, there's such um, warm tenderness for, as I say in the book, like the ways people struggle. And that that is, I think, a, a, a thing that transpires exactly, as you say, in the granular level of the novel, at the level of the sentence, at the level of the paragraph, and things like that. And it really rewards the kind of like stodgy uh, uh, English major scrutiny that we are trained to, to produce for it. Yeah. I, well, well, to kind of, you know, you know, we're among friends here as fellow English majors. Um, you you say you say as much in in the book um, early actually because you talk about the sentence born sensation that being carried over into regions considerably weirder and funnier <laughs> and more unhinged. And this is the part I'm interested in. Just a small bit freer, we'd have said than we were used to inhabiting. You don't apologize for that moment in the book. I will point out. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, um, like the kind of bit crit question, is this the case, uh, is this part of a case for why t- teaching formalism, attention to formalism, just broadly speaking, is important? And then um, as a follow-up to that, um, is this kind of, uh, in, in a ranking system, to, to be brutal about it, in a ranking system, where would you take this kind of formalism gives us access to these kind of moments that's why we should push it forward into our thinking. Uh, how would you, how would you take my suggestion? Oh, I mean, well, the first one I would say is that, you know, the simple way to answer is that form is how novels think. Form is a way of describing the how of the thinking of novels and poems and and stories and music and stuff like that. So, the more acute your vocabulary for describing how a novel thinks. The more ample your sense of what's at stake in it and what contradictions are being staged there. Um, Me, myself, I'm not one to oppose, like, uh, put it this way my formalism and my, say, historicism do not, I I, I would be loath to consider them opponents or anything other than neighbors, in part because. Uh, that's what Pynchon is telling me. Like, this is a historical-minded novelist. The guy is thinking about, like, histories of fascism and proto-fascism, afterlives of fascism, stuff like that. It surprises no one to say that the guy who wrote Gravity's Rainbow and Mason and Dixon is a historically-minded novelist. But he's a historically-minded novelist who cares intimately about the form of the novel, about the form that transpires at the level of sentence. So for me, I wouldn't want to rank them. I would want to say there's no opposition between them and that one can indeed follow the lead of this like gracious and hospitable and synthesizing novel and produce like a conceptually acute account that is also whose conceptual acuity comes through its formal liveliness. That would be my pitch. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. Well, you, earlier you had brought up um, teaching to adults. The one time you did yeah. teach it uh, to adults, and um, it, it always does uh, uh, does me good. As somebody who has left teaching behind, uh, thank God, um, to, to see um, um, not this like a triumphant moment, but you kind of uh, this moment where um, your class encounters this book, and it just it just goes over poorly. Um, yeah, they, just, you, you they just, hated it. You call them bookish and basically well-disposed professional adults. Um, and then I think in a moment, and this is more towards the end of the book, after you've set up a lot of the affective, you know, drawing us in with the, the personal appeal, they appreciated how much it seemed to mean to me, but they thought it was, in a tedious way, unreal, by which they meant indulgent, ahistorical, unhistorical. Uh, which is the exact opposite of what you just said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it was the exact opposite of what I was trying to convince them of. Yeah, it was a, it was a is, moment of great pedagogical failure, yes. Now, <laughs> the, the words that jump out there are tedious and indulgent. Yeah. Uh, how, how can we get around that in, in Vineland? And it is maximalist. It's, you know, it throws a lot at you. Like you yeah. said, it's like a Roadrunner cartoon. 
Mm-hmm. Um, how can we kind of circumvent this? Oh, this is just self-indulgent. This is, you know, this is demographically cliched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, Christian, I guess one of the things I would say is I'm, as I say sort of early in the book, people are absolutely welcome to that line. Like so much of uh, the atmosphere around Pynchon, you probably felt this too when you were a young person, was just this like, heavy with dudes sort of situation. You know what I mean? Like very serious dudes being dudes about like, well, you know, actually this middle European thing about it. Like, and that was very off putting to me. And it didn't seem to me really in the spirit of the novel, which is, as I say, to my mind, uh, gracious and welcoming, but that doesn't mean someone won't experience it as just absolutely tedious and indulgent. And that's fine. Like, that's fine. My, like, I, I want the book to sort of live as a kind of apology for that sort of hyper dudish delectation that surrounds Pynchon, because I think he is a more warm-hearted novelist. But that said, the unpersuaded have the right to their disaffection. You know what I mean? Like, I would never try, like, Pynchon's not your thing. Bless. I get it. That's totally fair. He is my thing. There's something kind of embarrassing about how much he is my thing. But I wouldn't like I, I'm going to try to make a case for um, the warmth and the open heartedness, as well as the like political sharpness and the movingness of the novel. But if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. Go with God. Um, let's, this brings me to kind of a, a confession of my own. Uh, so on Twitter, I follow a lot of kind of conspiracy-minded uh, people. Uh, and, oh man! And they love Pynchon. Of uh, course they do. And so there's this kind of um, extravagant. We might we might say indulgent, um, like MK Ultra. He worked in the military industrial complex, kind of puzzle oh, box yeah. approach. The, the Wanda uh, Tanaski stuff, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's kind of that's that's we can just put that aside, uh, and I think that's kind of the, <laughs> the worst version of the dude heavy. I believe um, you're right. Yes, or, um, or at least it's one prominent one. Yeah. Um, and you know, a bit off putting. Uh, even to me, although I, I greatly enjoy. But there's there's another really early. You talk about how it's uh, you, you use the the phrase least asphyxiated by boomer nostalgia. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, now, um, you know, generationally, uh, Pynchon way past my generation, much older than me. Um, is he a boomer novelist? I mean, it'd be difficult to read. And I, again, you know, I've read this book. That's a that's a, a love letter to Vineland, to Pynchon more generally. In all fairness, it would be difficult to read Vineland and not uh, see the tracks of a certain kind of boomer nostalgia, though I think he is trying, by which I simply mean uh, a desire to reckon with the 60s as a moment of great consolidation. And that can be done ultra badly, like it's like it's all of these things are like queued up for PBS fun drives of the future. Like you and I are about the same age. We both had to sit through a lot of like, and here again, PBS is showing us the Woodstock movie. Like, you know, enough with that. This novel is not untouched by that. And I think the late sixties were a moment of like foment and consolidation for Pynchon in important ways. It has the virtue I would say of thinking really hard about what was being consolidated and what was being forsworn in that particular moment. And it also, also to me, and this is kind of my, I don't know, not polemic exactly about the book, but it's thinking really hard about what that kind of nostalgia for the 60s as a moment of explicitly cultural foment is obscuring. Because for Pynchon and for this novel, the important thing about the 60s is that it was a moment of armed struggle like armed struggle, not really PBS fun driver stuff, but armed struggle, armed anti-capitalist, anti-state struggle that was subject to a variety of devastations. And that for Pynchon is, I think, the ballast for what can sometimes certainly seem to that class of people older than you and me as just boomer nostalgia. Like they were themselves boomers and they were like, eh, over it. He's just like a cranky old lefty. I don't have any time for that. (laughs) you know, tried to convince them of something otherwise. But yeah, I would say it would be hard not to be, not to look at Vineland and think it's at least tinctured by uh, 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 certain boomer fascinations. Maybe I was thinking more boomer in the uh, pejorative sense. Uh, and I think I you've reclaimed it to say like, he's a boomer, but one of the good ones. Uh. <laughs> 
I mean, I would say this. He's he's taking up what I think he recognizes by 1990 is this like, like the boomers become the yuppies. And he's trying to think about that, you know? He's trying to think about like, what's the nostalgia for this period? Oh, it's the nostalgia for a misremembered, um, already gauzily recalled moment that's all... Um, Woodstock and hippie dancing and not say Oakland or Detroit in 68. And he really wants to restore um, the political stakes of a moment that was that the Clintonite era was just going to like turn into like commodity culture. Yeah. I just had the terrible idea that we're as far away from Vineland being published as it was from the moment it was writing about. Oh, we're much further, dude. We're much further. We're like way further. 30, 30. Oh, geez. Yeah. God. Yeah. Because it's writing about like 67 to 69. It was only, it was only 20. We're like, we're old, All right. All right. Well, anyway, you described that as the ghost of the possibility of some completely different order. Yeah. Uh, And like, that's kind of the, the, the kernel of possibility. Um, now you identify that with um, just armed struggle and the, relocating the, um, the important moments of the '60s um, outside of kind of you know um, you know the farm in Woodstock or whatever. Um, <laughs> now, how does the obscurantism of the dudish appreciation of the novel collide with that? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, dude, that's a that's a great question. Um, well. I would say two, I'd give two answers to that. I feel like in the history of Pynchon criticism, like, as you know, like he was just taken up as this kind of exemplary postmodernist. And what that meant became fuzzy, of course, as categories become fuzzy, but chiefly meant like a person who was outthinking the closed systems of modernist art and trying to open, and this is where the paranoia comes in, trying to open the world to indeterminacy uh, and uh, uh, sort of distributive action and stuff like that. By the time it came to me again in the aughts, the the term that had sort of taken the place of postmodernism was neoliberalism. And that can also have a kind of dudist, like he is against privatization and and, and uh, the economism of the 90s and stuff like that. And again, I think all of these accounts are perfectly correct. Like I have no desire to, to unwrite them. I do think both of them can under-describe the specificity and the textured quality of Pynchon's relation to the historical sets of unfolding that he's trying to describe. And for me... Vineland is largely about not only this lost moment of armed struggle, but our almost instantaneous amnesia about it and our incapacity to recall it as a piece of history. So it's a, like a, a, about neoliberalism as a problem of historiography and as a problem of the police. So that for, for, for me is a sort of way of sharpening the languages that in that um, somewhat dudish delectation can get a little flattened, you know what I mean? Can be, can become just like a coin of currency for, uh, uh, for making a point too easily grasped, I would say. For those of you reading along at home, that's about page 108 and 109. You just stepped on my, <laughs> stepped on my next question. Um, ah. but all right, but, but uh, kind of sideways to that, um, you you call it very early in your book an outlier of a novel, this minorish and messy work, something of a wreck. <laughs> Although you've given a number of accounts that show that it has at least something resembling a coherent project. I, um, uh, yeah, to me. <laughs> um, and you in one hundred eight and one hundred nine, you kind of enumerate some of its faults and say that this kind of misses the specific density of their interaction of what's going on. And so I. Maybe here's a really simple question to begin with. Is the problem that Vineland is not serious, uh, that it has laughs? Oh, no. Yeah, that's a great question. And I would want to, that, that's great because it sets me up the answer. No, like strong no. A grace, a gift, a political um, tool of Vineland is that it has laughs. And that, that's part of its gracious invitation to think hard with tenderness and 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 care about the ways people struggle. No, I think one of the great things about Vineland is that it is constantly wedding um, real grief. Like I keep saying in the book, it's a novel of political grief. It thinks of the 60s uh, as a moment, as an insurrectionary moment that not only was lost, but that we have lost the capacity to remember as such. That's like vanishing over the horizon of historical conceivability. So it's in grief for that. But it also wants to ballast that sort of sense of political despair 
with like unresigned comedy, just like comedy as a sense of pervasive affirmation, a sense that people actually do have the resources to get themselves through the day. And those resources may be effective and they may be local and they may not scale up to the moment of insurrection, but they matter. And I find that wedding of um, like horror to joyousness to like uh, despair and the unresigned, just one of the true great gifts of Pynchon, like a refusal to cede either of those things, to cede, to, to back away from horror or joyousness. That's a hard trick. You know what I mean? That's a hard, hard trick. And I feel like Vineland is one place he does it. He's teaching himself how to do it. Of course, Mason and Dixon is a much longer version of that, a very, very comic, beautiful antic novel that's also about empire. Um, so I would say, no, the, 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 any problems it have have nothing to do with its unseriousness uh, so much as they might have to do with like, uh, you could think about women in a more acute way. The stuff about Takeshi doesn't really play out. It is weird to think about an insurrectionary moment almost exclusively through college kids, your insurrectionary moment is going to kick very white um, in that respect. All those things are true and fair. And like, as Pynchon himself says, whatever is fair. But the comedy, no. I would keep insisting that that's like essential. That's like at the heart of what I will continue to say is a great anti-fascist political project. All right. Well, all right. So now that I've given you that softball. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you really did. (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah, like early again in the novel, like you kind of set all this up because, and this is, I'm I'm curious about um, the the word choice here. You talk about the deadpan recitation of a history of American domestic atrocity. Yeah. Um, And say more about deadpan. Yeah, yeah. uh, It's one of the, again, a thing I find to be um, kind of smitten with in Pynchon uh, is his production of horror in something other than the register of shock shocked. Yes, I am shocked. Like for Pynchon, it is just a given that the projects of modernity are rapacious and about dispossession and that givenness suffuses not only uh, the sort of what you could call the organizing consciousness of the narrative that identify with Pynchon or don't, but like the lives of the characters like Zoid, like counterculture knockabout dad is under no. He, by the time we get to Zoid, he too is under no illusions about what the novel will call the true nature of the police. He too is under no illusions about the scabland garrison state that is uh, uh, the imperial United States. You know what I mean? And that the the by deadpan, I think I'm trying to probably gesture toward the 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 savoir about the fact of dispossession. And the, 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 the fact that uh, American modernity is made of violence being done to others always, whether you can see them or not. Um, so that's, I, 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 I think what I would try to try to gesture toward there, not, but I mean, not just in, in the novel itself, not just in the novel center of consciousness, but pervading its demimon, like something that the characters just know fucking Prairie knows this. She's 14, you know, like she also lives with that sort of like, knowingness yeah so when you bring up the, the scabland garrison state uh you know it's a california novel um and you know right, legally i'm an australian uh but I'm, I'm 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 from the midwest of the united states and kind of early early page 16 you talk about california as the key to 20th century american life uh, and on the one hand i say okay at least it's not new york um <laughs> But um, like, but I think is there a cost kind of um, of picking California? I mean, you, earlier you talked about you know this place rather than Oakland, for example, or Detroit, also significant uh, locations uh, in the 1960s. I mean, you can look at where all of the urban insurrections happened, uh, and they're not in the places you would kind of immediately pull off the map to say, oh, this is actually where significant street scenes of anti-police violence struggle were happening. Um, so is it, um, is it um, just using California, I guess we could say instrumentally, 
uh, or is it is he kind of falling into kind of you you've got to pick California or New York um, to make a <laughs> make a statement about America? Uh, I that's that's a great question. I would, and if someone wanted to make that claim that there's something just fundamentally provincial about California, I wouldn't fight them too much. Though I guess I would say that for pension, it's a formal device. Like California affords a bounded way to think about the history of the 20th century, from the logging struggles, from the worker struggles. It's a very you know it's a book concerned from the word go with worker struggles, which is why it also goes to the blacklist and stuff like that. Um, I think for him, California in this novel particularly provides a useful microcosm for thinking about uh, the germane political struggles of the American 20th century. Is there going to be something slightly provincializing about that? Eh, you're probably not wrong. A little bit, though. Um, and could it have been... Would its political analytics be charged up by thinking about Detroit, by making Oakland something over than a stopover, something other than a stopover point in the book rather than just Berkeley? Certainly, yes. Though, I think it's kind of... For me, I'm I'm moved by the way the book sees in the 20th century of California from its north to its south, a way into what it wants to argue are the most salient political struggles of the century, having to do with like labor, land, and empire, and fundamentally the cops. So, all right. So let's talk about the cops. Yeah, the um, book certainly wants to talk about the cops. Um, so there's a lot of you put a bunch of words in front of counterinsurgency. Perpetual counterinsurgency, carceral counterinsurgency, total counterinsurgency as a way of life. Um, is counterinsurgency the the key term rather than neoliberalism for yeah, uh, to replace postmodernism? Yeah, Christian, that's great. Uh, what I, I guess part of what I would say the book taught me, you're talking about the pedagogical qualities of the book, mm-hmm. is that like, listen, I get the version of neoliberalism as the like marketization of all life. Got it. Like the 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 uh, dismantling of public services and the turning over of all of civic life to the market. Got it. Got it. Got it. Like I absolutely understand that. But this novel wants to claim that you don't really understand that if you if you uh, fail to uh, that that that's going to be a partial account of contemporary modernity if you don't understand the qualities of carceral counterinsurgency that everywhere back it up. That is to say, undergirding it is a sense of the population in ceaseless need of what Foucault is going to call securitization. Foucault, uh, um, 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 uh, Ruth Gilmore, like, like those for me are the are the part of the historical thrust of the novel. That like the police are not just like hippie police are bad. Actually, the police are a way of ordering all of civic life ordering civic life on the model of a perpetual security crisis that authorizes not only just the the offhand overfunding of the police but like the the like massive undertaking of rounding up surplus populations for the maw of incarceration like that that i think is a real thrust of the book and it thinks you want to know a moment of consolidation when the police really came into their own think about 6869 Think about American 6869. And that seems to me, and he, and he wants to say, like, that's neoliberalism, dudes. Like, that's, that seems to me an underthought point about neoliberalism generally that Pynchon's novel really, really helps um, vivify. All right, so let me, let me try and pull some threads together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and bring the dudes together. Uh, <laughs> um, kind of uh, counterinsurgency and, um, and kind of uh, and pedagogy. Mm-hmm. So um, if we've got like counterinsurgency and a lot of the, the pension obsessives who just like, you know, oh, he mentions this place and that's where yeah. this particular missile was tested. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so there's kind of this obsessive kind of um, ridiculous version of like, I guess we could call it historicism. Uh, yeah. Kind know, of a, yeah. Uh, so there's that, um, that seems not to be connected to um what you're talking about with like registering counterinsurgency as the totalizing strategy uh, for the control of populations, especially you know, undesirables. Um, how do we carry that into the classroom? And this isn't just about pension, but obviously this would just be about in, in, in reading literature uh, and like in the business of kind of English departments, film studies departments, like how do we kind of 
a lot of students really get into identifying, oh, that's this historical moment that's being referenced. And a lot of students can get into shit is fucked up and bullshit right now. But, you know, how, how do we, how do we make that connection? Yeah. I mean, that the, it's a great question. The, the two simple answers, it's just hard work, right? Like, as I often tell my students, like, like the process of thinking and thinking historically is super hard. Like it's just super hard because what do you have to think with? Well, the tools you have to think with all come from inside that uh, given moment. I guess one thing I would say is a true gift about Vineland. Often, not often, it seems to me that thinking about um, historical present tense can happen along certain fracture lines that I don't think are especially salutary. Like in the States, there's a lot of like, well, we want to think about class. We want to think about uh, uh, material dispossession that Marx helps us think about. And that can often oppose itself to what gets called in the quarterlies like identity politics, thinking about racialization and stuff like that. And a book like Vineland is kind of like dudes. Those are not separable things. And it would do you would do well to think of them in simultaneity. That is to say, the uh, dispossession and privatization that we identify with liberalism, neoliberalism has at its heart this like crazy racialized carceral counterinsurgency. And those things are actually one. And this novel will help you think those things together rather than in, I think, what you're really nicely describing as like conspiracists, small, disconnected doses. You know what I mean? There's a way that conspiracy mindedness is a kind of anti-historicism, you know, like it's like a, a taking one set of mysteries or secrets and radically decontextualizing them so that they become a fascinating narrative. And Pigeon in ways that can be frustrating is not that guy. Like he's a synthesizer, you know, like he wants this to be adjoined to this to give you a sense of a kind of totality. So that would be my pitch for the novel, though. Again, thinking totality is fucking hard. It's just not like a, like a, just a hard thing to do. And if novels are a kind of resource in that, then God bless them, you know? Well, all right. So, uh, one question I have. Um, so, uh, as a as a young undergraduate, I was I eagerly purchased the Gravity's Rainbow Guide. Oh um, yeah, so yeah, I remember like, that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so I think it's on Georgia. Um, um, and I remember it was because there was um, a, a bit of a cult around Pynchon as a very difficult to understand and inaccessible author. And kind of your your whole point is kind of, and I think by kind of couching it in this like. 19 year old embarrassed about my former self kind of narrative, then it's actually uh, not true. He's actually a really accessible writer. Um, what does it take? Now, like university presses are putting out this guide. Uh, so allegedly it's pitched towards really smart people and it's been put together by really smart people. But what do you have to do to reach the point of view to say, no, Pynchon is a very accessible writer who can can take take us to these moments of understanding, uh, like totalities. Yeah, I mean, I don't like the answer to that question is, I don't know, man. Like that, if I if I knew that, I'd be I'd, I'd be talking to the MacArthur people. You know what I mean? Like like the best I could do. So part of the part of the way this book is written, and part of the way that I think they the folks asked me to write for the series is like the pitch of the book is like. You don't have to be a specialist. You don't have to be an academic. You don't have to be a Pinchonian. We want to write to a general, if literate, audience. That's all. And like a general literate audience does like Pinchon. Like Pinchon does pretty well. Like, you know what I mean? There's not a lot of novelists who when they die will be A1 above the fold New York Times. I bet Pinchon will be. Um, So it's not like, like people are not reading him. But exactly the thing you're describing, like that sense of Pinchon as forbiddingly difficult uh, as rewarding a kind of Talmudic scrutiny, like that's fine. But honestly, I wanted to make the case as um, graciously as I could, as welcoming as I could. Pinton's novels are also very gracious and welcoming. And like, I totally hear what you're saying. I don't know if a university press publication is the way to do that. Eh, that could be right. But, you know, one swings at the pitches one sees. And that's, uh, that's, that's, this is the thing I know how to do. Uh, so the, the, I, the pitch of the book was to like, get as much like scholarly intellectual density into something that speaks in the vernacular. 
about a book that speaks all the time in the vernacular, no matter its weirdness, no matter its uh, interest in the blacklist, no matter its interest in the IWW. Um, so yeah, if like part of it's also, honestly, if I'm just being truthful, part of it's just like, you know, you get older and you want to pay your debts to things you love. And this is a book that I've just loved so much and felt so... Um, um, saved by in very stupid ways over many moments, and you kind of want to repay that um, as best you can. So that's the much less political ambition of the book. Just kind of a fan's notes, you know? Well, but you even say at one point that has the invocation of a lived experience that people know and understand. Um, I mean, for as much as, you know, uh, as you were saying that, I want I, I had another follow up, but I think that's kind of you get to what's at at its heart, you know. And one some of the critiques was like, oh, this is like you know he got soft and he got sentimental um, because it was about families, and it's like it seems like it wanted the dudish, even though the dudish was not was was also not cool. Uh, and then he moves into this, uh, and it, that's actually why it's accessible. Um, yeah, and I think that I I am I mentioned in the book like it because it uh, because it ends happily rather than grimly uh with a sort of uh, now everyone um because uh it has so much about family and lost mothers and stuff like that it was read as a kind of like reconciliation with a certain kind of sentimentality and like I get why people would say that because it is a book that ends in kind of like unresigned comedy but I'm not sure I would just give it over to mere mawkishness or anything like that. I think the stakes are a lot higher and trying to write something that's politically despairing in the key of affirmation. Like I got a lot of time for that. I got a lot of time for a novel of political despair and outrage written in the key of battered affirmation. That's what I would say violent is. That's what I would say violent is. And you know what? Like, I got a lot of time for that now. I got a lot of time for that right now. Like 2022, I wrote it in 2019. Like, that seems to me like the 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 acts of conceptual synthesis that are required to inhabit that position are compelling to me and moving to me and seem of use to me. God bless if people know, if other people are like, eh, I get that someplace else. Uh, go with God. That's great. That's great. But this, I haven't been able to forswear this one and I have no, at this point, no desire to, because it still is nourishing, you know? Well, I, well before we go, I, uh, and it's, this is a uh, question. What do you do with the songs? <laughs> other than delight in them? <laughs> like, like the deep commitment to silliness this is so great. Like a refusal to, like this is, again, I'll just keep saying, like a refusal to concede the point that political gravity and silliness can't be made to go together. Pynchon's just like, fuck no, these things are internal to one another. And like, if that's not your thing, if you think that a novel of political gravity should actually not have so much stoner absurdism, so much like song making silliness, go with God, that's fine. This novel disagrees. This novel thinks that like an absolute commitment to like stupid puns and again, roadrunner gags holds space with like acute anti-fascist historical analysis. It, it, that's, that's just what it fundamentally believes. That's part of the texture of life that uh, Thomas Pynchon wants to narrate. And I, I, I'll tell you what, I'm in for that. I, I'm in for the non-excision of silliness um, in part as like a, like a, like a, something that cures the airlessness of a kind of dudish self-seriousness. That's blessed. Well, like that. One last one before we get to some wrap up stuff. So in terms of like the not being asphyxiated by boomer nostalgia, yeah. <laughs> one, of the question, one of the questions I had was like, how is Pynchon young versus how is Pynchon old? Cause the dude is uh, old. Now, yeah, yeah. But I feel old. like this dedication, um, and this is, this is, he wasn't, he wasn't very old when this book came out. Um, but, but is this dedication something that kind of um, puts that kind of young, old, um, you know, it's a the young man's silliness um, versus an old man's don't give a fuckness. Like, how does, how do yeah, those kind that's of a great, intersect? That's a great question. Like, I'd like to think there, there's a beautiful, you know, the introduction to Slow Learner where he just like speaks in proprio persona, like, hi, I'm Thomas Pynchon. I wrote these. It's a very moving little thing. It's very personable and it's very filled with, in fact, shame about his younger self, which I also appreciate. Um, 
But he speaks of himself as having had to learn to pay attention to what he calls American nonverbal reality. And I feel like part of what being a polymath is for him is on the one hand, he's like old guy show offy, like, look at all the shit I know. And I'm going to sort of constantly perform that. But he also has great ears and he has a tremendous amount of receptivity. And part of what having been a young man in insurrectionary moments has taught him, I think, is to like be not exactly respectful, but like recognize that the kids are doing something. What the kids are doing may be somewhat oblique to what I know or understand, but I bet there's something to it. And I bet that the fact that younger people are doing something that's illegible to me is part of its charge. And I and that's why you don't see a lot of dismissiveness in Pynchon. Like he treats the 14-year-old Prairie, who's like exactly you're in my age, with like great tenderness. There's not a lot of mockery for like, oh, look at teenagers. He just doesn't do that, which makes me sort of um, look askance at all those versions of Pynchon in the criticism where he's like, like a, like a, like a stern despiser of mass culture. Stern despising, like Pynchon despises imperial capital. You know what I mean? Like that's that's where it's despising. He doesn't really despise Roadrunner cartoons. He doesn't think those are a pure expression of, even if they are entangled with imperial capital. All of which is a way to say like, he sustains a warm, non-dismissive regard for the ambitions and enthusiasms of young people. And I find that, especially as I'm getting older, very admirable. Uh, well, I think that's a good place to end because I think it ties together a lot of the, the points. But, but as we're wrapping up, you had said you're not a Pinchonian, not even yep. a 20th century Americanist. Um, so what exactly are you working on now that you've got, uh, oh you've, my paid, God. you've paid your debts to Thomas Pynchon? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Listen, man, it's been a weird couple of years. Like a couple of years ago, I wrote this uh, memoir, which is not an academic book at all. I 10 years is working on a book about like secularism and the Mormons, 19th century Mormonism and history of sexuality. Wrote this Thomas Pynchon book because I love Thomas Pynchon. The next book of mine that's coming out is a book of essays, which is more in the key of like vernacular criticism. And it's called, Is There a God After Prince? And it's about what it means to love things, love what Robert Lowell will call slight useless things like books and novels and stories and poems um, in the context of like calamity of what seem like end times. Um, um, like, you know, in a, in a world of, of uh, ongoing collapsingness, of end strickenness, what can it mean to love things like songs? So I have a book of essays coming out about that. And the next 10 years are going to find me writing a long book about Melville. <laughs> so check back with me in, uh, what is it, uh, 2030? Then, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I have time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let us hope we both do. Yeah. All right. Well, absolute pleasure hearing from you. Oh, Christian, um, what a delight. What a, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. So if you're looking, it's Vineland Reread. It's Peter Coviello. And you can find it on Columbia University Press. And... We'll see you next time.